0: please open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, Matthew 18, and I do hope you were able to have uh, received one of those handouts when you came in, as I introduce a new series this morning uh, in our current study here, The Journey of Forgiveness. And we're picking up right where we left off from the previous series on the shepherd's reach. As you're turning there, I don't usually embarrass our visitors because I want them to come back but there is one visitor I know very well and you do too. Uh, Pastor Greg DeJarnett and his wife Tara are here. As you know they serve the Lord by filling pulpits in churches that are between pastors and, and, and sometimes they go in and help struggling churches as well and uh, he's one of my most recent heroes uh, as a seasoned shepherd and one that loves the local church. So it's a Thank you for gracing us with your presence this morning. We trust that you'll be encouraged. But still, invite your visitors. I won't do that with them, okay? All right. Some of you who like to read history, and particularly World War II history, have come across the name of a submarine, one of the America's submarines, known as the, the Tang, T-A-N-G. The Tang surfaced under the cover of darkness during World War II to fire upon a large Japanese convoy off of the coast of China. Now you need to know something about the Tang. It had only been in the theater of war for like just a year or two. It was a relatively new submarine, and in its short career, its short life, it had been very effective against the enemies. But this particular night, it surfaced the fire upon a large Japanese convoy, as I said, just off the coast of China. And since its previous raids had left the American vessel with only eight more torpedoes, the accuracy of each shot was absolutely essential. And wouldn't you know it, just like its previous success, The first seven missiles were right on target. But it was the eighth one, the eighth torpedo, that was a problem. When the eighth torpedo was launched, it suddenly deviated and headed right back at the Tang. The emergency alarm to submerge rang out, but it was too late. Within a matter of seconds, the U.S. sub received a direct hit and sank almost instantly, killing many of those on board and sending the rest into the setting of being a prisoners, prisoners of war. You see, that's pretty rough. It's a tragic story. You mean a submarine sunk itself? Yeah, yeah, it is tragic. But equally as tragic some would even say more tragic, is the fact that when a person is angry or bitter and unforgiving of other people in their life and they, they take that posture only to punish someone else, they are the ones that really are sunk. The unforgiver is the one who is the ultimate sufferer. This topic of forgiveness is urgent. It's urgent. You say, why? Well, I pick up here in your notes. If you are a non-forgiver, you leave in your wake, I count at least seven realities. If you won't forgive others, or if you are real choosy on who you'll forgive and who you won't forgive, there is carnage all around you. I think you'll see it when we point at it. Number one, there are changed relationships in your life changed relationships you say what does that mean it means that they're still on the on the screen this friendship or this relationship it could be someone across town or someone across the auditorium or someone in another another part of your family or even in your marriage i mean the relationship's still there it's just never quite the same again if you want a verse for this one you want to remember proverbs 18:19 which says a brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. There's changed relationships. Or we can take it a little further. Number two is destroyed friendships. Yeah, when, by the time we get to number two, I mean, that friendship's no longer on the screen at all. Or that family member is treated as if they are Unknown. If you're a non-forgiver, actual relationships disappear. Proverbs 17, verse 9 is a good one to remember for this. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. What else does unforgiveness leave in its wake? Number three, ministry casualties. We've seen this in our own city. We've seen this in, in the history of, of an eight-decade church. This has been seen, I'm sure, in a church like ours. This is where two spiritual people, or people that are trying to advance the gospel, um, can't agree on something, and so what they do is they split up. You have an example of this in Scripture with Paul and Barnabas. Now, we know by the end of Paul's life, this vision had, had, had healed And what caused this split between Paul and Barnabas, John Mark, there had been restoration there and effectiveness. But still, it's preserved for us in the book of Acts that the the contention between them was so sharp, they refused to work again together at that time. Or Paul preserves for us also in Philippians chapter 4 the story of Yodia and Syntyche, two very strong, gifted women in the church there who for some reason, they were worrying on different sides of an issue and the fire of contention sprung up and Paul had to audibly call for help in that church for a leader named, well, his name is preserved for us as true companion. Help these ladies for the sake of the gospel. Another casualty of of non-forgiveness is number four, isolation. You know what I'm talking about here someone who's been burned too many times by one particular person, or listen, by different people in their lives, people they were supposed to be able to trust, people they were supposed to be able to run to as a safe place, you've gotten burned one too many times. So now, listen, you don't trust anyone. You isolate. And and it's not just that you isolate in the present, because you don't trust anyone but you plan on isolating in the future because, well, you won't be able to trust anyone there, and it gets so bad that sometimes you even revisit the past and people that honestly cared for you, and you start to doubt their motives. And so you isolate. And Proverbs 18.1 is a good one to remember for this. He who separates himself seeks his own desire, and he quarrels against all sound wisdom. Hmm. Number five, there's withered fruit. When there's no forgiveness. You say, what do you mean by this? Well, you know what verses go with this. Galatians 5, to 23 Because you show me someone, you show me a man, you show me a woman who refuses to forgive. They refuse to be defined as a forgiving person. I'll show you someone who cannot mature the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and faithfulness, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. It's Galatians 5, to 23 You say, I won't forgive those people. I'll say to you, on the authority of God's word, you cannot mature the fruit of the Spirit. You say, well, I'm going to isolate those people to one part of my life, but I'll do the fruit of the Spirit on the other parts of my life. Which one's true? Number six, when there's no forgiveness, sometimes we will find untamed tongues or gossip. We'll find tongues that are easy to spread rumors, accentuate faults, or, direct, or deliver direct hits on a regular basis to people, either to their face or behind their back. And Proverbs 12.18 warns us of this. Proverbs 12.18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. Those are strikes to kill, not wound. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or number seven, for someone who won't forgive, they leave in their wake an unattractive witness. Remember the two ladies I told you about in Philippi? Yodia and Syntyche? Paul will write directly to them, and it's being read in front of the whole church there in Philippi, he says to the man he recruits to help them, named True Companion, he says, indeed, True Companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He's saying, come on, you got to step in and help these ladies because the, the cause of the gospel is our concern and their conflict, their lack of will and grace To reconcile is sending a directly opposite message of the gospel. Their names are in the book of life. Act like it. So I don't know. Look at that list. It's kind of a nice list at the beginning of this sermon, isn't it? If I don't forgive, I will experience changed relationships, destroyed friendships, ministry casualties, isolation, withered fruit, untamed tongue, and an unattractive witness. That's called a direct hit that sinks you. And you are meaning to punish someone else. This is serious stuff. And it's serious enough for us to do something about it. So, what I want to do and embark on this morning and into my next couple of Sunday morning sermons around the Christmas events is I want to talk about the journey of forgiveness. I want us to take a trip together. I want us to walk the same pathway together, and it will all be from Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 21 and go to the end of the chapter over these, these five times we meet for this series. You see, our series will our journey will consist of five stops. I could be over here at the beginning where I am offended by someone. Someone sins against me, and it's a legitimate sin. I'm not going to take anything away from the sin. And the answer for someone like me who's been sinned against is not for you to come into my life and say, tell them you forgive them, and you lecture me on on, on that, and and I'm supposed to forgive someone who has seriously sinned against me in a very dark way. Is that easy? No, I'm going to suggest to you that we are going to walk the same path that Jesus is going to take Peter on the rest of this chapter. It's interesting, we're taking a break from our series in Peter and we're still talking about Peter. I love this. Can't get away from this guy. And our first stop that we're going to look at today is this. We're going to have to, first of all, if I'm going to have to get to that point down there where I can forgive someone who's committed something dark against me, I've got to start here. Stop number one is called admit your hesitancy. And we just got to have a straight up talk this morning. And Jesus is going to do that with Peter and with us in this text in just a few verses. I want to give you a preview. Until we make this first stop, we can't go any further on this journey. We can't get any closer to that point of forgiveness. We have to admit our hesitancy to forgive. The second part on our stop will be simply this. It will be called remember your story. We're going to have to talk about the gospel in this stop. That's next Sunday. And then there's going to be a third stop. And the third stop is guard your heart. You see, when we're not being forgiving people, as Jesus instructs us to do, to be, then we just have to look at our heart and and what's coming out of our heart when we're sinned against is going to look a lot like what comes out of the world, a godless world, a gospelless person, when they are wronged. We have to guard our heart. There's another stop. There's a fourth stop we're going to have to come to. And this fourth stop is, is simply this. Fear your God. It's possible to already have made these stops on my way to forgive them and to get this far into the journey and still fold our arms and say, no, I'm not going to forgive them. Okay? Our fourth stop is a warning to us at this point. And then finally, at the fifth stop, we are now standing with the person who has sinned against us in a very dark way. And four stops ago, we can't even imagine forgiving them. But having made this journey that Jesus takes Peter on, that we're going to go on, we're standing with them now. And there's a whole new grace-animated resolve and ability to forgive But we're going to have to talk about how do we forgive. What's the difference between forgiving and covering in love? We're going to answer all that on that fifth stop. But our first stop today is this. Admit your hesitancy. And this stop on the journey, I just want you to see two realities in the time we have left. Two realities. I want you to see the risks of forgiveness and the requirement of Christ. First of all, the risks of forgiveness. We're here in Matthew 18, remember the setting here in Matthew 18, we are in Capernaum. I believe we are in Peter's home, and as I said in the first part of our study in this chapter, whatever Jesus says in Matthew 18, he has a little child in his arms, on his lap. And if he's in Peter's house, guess whose kid that is? A mini Peter. So whatever we're going to see in here, between now and the end of the chapter, don't hear Jesus with his... His forehead all wrinkled up and his veins sticking out of his neck. These are are terms that are given with an endearing tone and a loving expression and words of truth and freedom. Look at verse 21 of Matthew 18. We just finished, remember, this passage on church discipline, the shepherd's reach. And just so you remember where we, we ended up, when we got to verse... 19 and 20 it says where two or three on earth are are gathered um, about anything that they may ask it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven for where two or three have gathered together in my name I'm there in their midst. It's talking about this whole process of, of rescue through the church for a brother or sister who has sinned. Well Peter he's in his home he's always leaning in he's always the first one to raise his hand and sometimes he didn't even raise his hand he just blurted his question out Here we go in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Seven times? I want you to notice a couple things about Peter that's revealed in this question. You've got to give him a little slack here. Number one, he was being generous. When he used that number seven, he was actually being generous. Because the going rate of forgiveness by the religious elite in the Jewish community preached by their rabbis at this time was, you only have to forgive someone three times. Just three times. And if you cornered their rabbis and said, how do you come up with three? They would open their Bible to the Old Testament, to the book of Amos, And they would show you a phrase that occurs over and over in the opening two chapters of Amos as Amos works his way through the nations before ending on Israel. He's going to say in Amos chapter 1 verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 11, verse 13, and chapter 2 verses 1, 4, and 6. You're going to see this phrase. For three transgressions and for four. That's the phrase. And the rabbis pointed to that text and said, see... You sin against me three times, I'll forgive you. You sin against me a fourth time, I don't have to forgive you, because God doesn't. For three transgressions or for four. So the rabbis were saying, it's at three. That's where it stands, because we're in charge. And it's what the Old Testament says, or at least how we understand it. So you see what Peter's doing here. The moment Peter says seven, you can tell that he's, he's really wrestling with this. Because earlier in our Lord's ministry, in the Sermon on the Mount, and I believe several times since then already, he'd heard Jesus say, when Jesus was teaching us how to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And so Peter had been chewing on that, and had realized, if I'm a forgiven person, I need to be a forgiver. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to double the bad guys and add one, just to get me a little brighter halo. They say three, Lord, it's seven, right? Is that consistent with what I've heard you teach? So give him a little credit. He was being generous. But number two, don't miss this. He was still being hesitant. Peter is still being hesitant. Because the moment Peter still put a number by it, Peter is asking permission, can I still keep count? Can I still lean in and keep the stats so I can keep an eye on them? But the problem is, Christ-like love doesn't look at the scoreboard. In 1 Corinthians 13.5, even Paul says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. You say, does it ignore it? No, there are real wrongs, and we're going to tell you. That's the fifth stop. Don't get ahead of us. We're talking about a heart posture here. And Peter's betraying the fact that he's hesitant to forgive still, even with the number seven. You say, well, that's, that's Peter. And we, our hobby is to shake our head at Peter, right, whenever he asks a question or makes, makes a statement. Let's don't be so hesitant. Yes, Peter's hesitant to forgive more than seven times. But how are you? How am I? I think you will find that we too are hesitant to forgive because of fear. Can I suggest a couple to you pastorally? First of all, there's the fear of insincerity. You would expect me to start here, right? The fear of insincerity. This is the fear that says this. Well, how do I know that they are sincere? They want my forgiveness, but how do I know they really mean it? I mean, I know that person's patterns. I live with them. I said I do with them. I'm in a church covenant with them. I know their patterns. I know their track record. And and by the way, I've been hurt by them before. How do I know they're not just faking it? This is the first one because this is the most common one. I struggle with it. Do you? But you know, if we take this fear to its sure destination, we will never forgive anyone for anything. I can't read someone else's heart I don't know. And the Bible gives me an out on this, 1 Corinthians 2:11, "Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Or Proverbs 14 verse 10, "The heart knows its own bitterness." Or, or Proverbs 20 verse five, "The plan in the heart of a man is like deep water." Maybe you could use a little bit of liberating truth at this point. You see, you and I don't have to answer for their heart. We have to answer for our obedience. True repentance, as we preached two weeks ago, will bring forth fruit. That's 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. And you have your local church to help you in the event that there is no fruit. It's called the shepherd's reach. We're talking about you right now. The fear of insincerity talking about me there's a second fear the fear of vulnerability the fear of vulnerability you you already know what this one sounds like right this is the fear that says in our hearts well if I get soft I'm gonna get hurt again I don't want to be soft because I don't want to get hurt so what what do we say to that one what do we say to that one there is a chance the person or someone else if you have too much of a forgiving posture towards people will hurt you I mean that's full disclosure you say is that news at this point in the gospel no our Lord had already talked to Peter and over his shoulder to the multitudes in Matthew 5 verse 7 which says blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy and a few verses beyond that You say, well, if I'm a forgiving person, I'm going to take some hits in this life as a disciple. And he answers, yes, you will. But our Lord just said in the Sermon on the Mount, it sure puts you in good company. So persecuted they, the prophets who were before you, and the one speaking these words in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself is the ultimate example. I find it interesting that some believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh was a person, not a physical ailment. The thorn in the flesh that he refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I happen to take that position as well. I think it was a person because it, when, in his weakness, in his vulnerability, Paul praised God for a strength from God that he never would have known if he wasn't vulnerable. And he even uses the word persecutions. That's what makes me believe it's a person that's a thorn in his flesh. I think that's consistent with who was in Corinth. There's a fear of vulnerability. Third, there's a fear of change. Now you've got to track with me on these last two. The fear of change. See, what do you mean? Some people will not forgive someone where there's been a, a long margin developed between them and the other person. Why? Because my not forgiving that person has kind of been nice doing life without them. I haven't missed them. Actually, I can hear the birds sing because they're not in my moments. But they realize that if I'm going to be reconciled to that person, they're going to be up close again you may have gotten comfortable not liking that guy, that girl. But now Christ, if you obey him, remember we're still way over here on the first stop on our trip, if you forgive that person, Christ is going to want you to live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control towards that person. That will be change for you. It's a whole lot less work, it seems, keep the margin in. It's a legitimate fear. Let's call it what it is. And it's a fear of change that you'll have to go through. Well, there's one more fear and I need you to track closely with me on this one too. I call this one the fear of exposure. The fear of exposure. You see, whatever it was that happened that was dark way down there that we're even considering forgiving. There's a possibility that you were involved with a sin with that person. Or you can call it a co-sin. You were both involved in something dark and, and in that darkness there were further wrongs happening. But you're not guiltless in that situation either. Or, perhaps, they sinned against you in a very dark way and you in return... Shot your torpedoes at them. But if there's going to be reconciliation, Jesus is telling Peter, as he he takes him on this journey, if you're going to reconcile with that person, you not only need to forgive them for their sin against you, but you need to ask their forgiveness for how you sinned with them or against them in return. Your sin in forgiving them would be exposed. After all, Proverbs 18.17 says, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Your words, your actions, your attitudes would be brought to the light and need dealt with as well. The fear of exposure. It was old Matthew Henry, the great commentator, who wrote, There's a proneness in our corrupt nature to stint ourselves in that which is good and to be afraid of doing too much in religion, particularly, he writes, "of forgiving too much, though we have so much forgiven us." End quote." Now look at that list. You got that list in sincerity, vulnerability. Do you see it? Change? Exposure? Did you notice the common denominator in all four? My pride. Maybe that's why Peter unloads in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 5 through 11 on the topic of pride. Maybe his mind comes back to this day in his crowded living room when he is coming face to face with his own pride and being hesitant to forgive. So we just got one more verse and then we're done for this morning. Let me just tell you this. When we go from verse 21 to verse 22, we're not just changing speakers. We're changing worldviews. I want you to see the requirement of Christ. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. He's saying to Peter, no, seven's, seven's not good enough. He says, I'm going 70 times seven. That, that was the way to say back then an innumerable amount. When Jesus said 70 times seven, he was not in he was not in uh, uh, planning on the number 490 to land in our minds today and say, oh, okay, so I'll forgive you, Rick. 490 times for a particular sin, but 491, we're done. Because just think how ridiculous that is. In addition to that, that's not what the language is telling us, but if I'm, if I'm allowed to go 490, that will get me through a lifetime. But that's only for that sin. Let's say Rick invents a second type of sin against me. And I'm at 200 on the first sin, and he starts over with another one, I've got to start at, four, at one with that one. And if you don't Rick, I mean, he has a lot of ways to sin against you. And how am I going to keep count? That's impossible. That is the point Christ is making to Peter and to us on our first stop. The goal, listen, is not to keep count at all. As a matter of fact, later in our Lord's ministry, when he speaks on this topic of forgiveness again, I do hold Luke 17 to be a a, a separate occasion with similar themes. He says this in Luke 17. He said to his disciples, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Then he says this, Be on your alert, talking to the disciples. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And listen to verse 4. It's like Jesus is using Peter's words of 7 on him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. What's Christ's key point? Christ's key point is this. It's not a matter of points or keeping score. It's a matter of posture. It's a matter of postures. I know this is the right answer because of the use of 70 times 7. But I also know it's the answer from the Luke 17 passage. I read to you verses 1 through 4. You know what the disciples respond with in verse 5 of Luke 17? This simple phrase, Lord, increase our faith. Because to go through life with a posture that's ready to forgive is going to take amazing faith in what you have taught us. And the answer to that is yes. Our Lord here is teaching Peter on this first stop and teaching all of us on this first stop on our journey that we need to have a posture of forgiveness. I want to describe that posture, then we're finished this morning. First of all, letter A, it's a posture that is commanded. you understand that, right? This is a posture, having a a, a posture ready to forgive is commanded. Even in Mark 11, 25 at the beginning of our Lord's Passion Week. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. There's not even someone near you're supposed to be forgiving, and he's using this language. If, if you have anything against anyone, forgive. So that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. It's a posture that's commanded. Now, the other person's not there to have the conversation with in our Lord's scenario. What our Lord is teaching is there's a posture that's ready to, to enter into the transaction of forgiveness. Jesus commanded it. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine agrees. Do not say, thus I will do to him as he's done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Or Ephesians 4, 32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is a posture that is commanded. This is not a posture that's on the Christian buffet that you can pass over on some occasions if you don't want it. I'll take the Brussels sprouts. No forgiveness for me. Thank you. The hymn writer Wesley put it this way. Pass smoothly over the perverseness of those you have to do with and, and go straight forward. It is abundantly sufficient that you have the testimony of a good conscience toward God. This is a command to have this posture. Think of it as an illustration of you pressing on that door to get out of the auditorium. There's no bolts, nothing on that door. If you want to exit the auditorium, you lean into that door. Now, if Fred Crothers is on the other side of that door holding it shut with his foot, you've got a problem. But that doesn't, God's telling you to lean here, not to open the door. As God works in the heart of Fred on the other side, and he steps out of the way, you are leaning on that door, you're going to fall into the lobby. This is a posture of leaning, ready for reconciliation. And this command is given by a God, listen, who is a forgiving God. Our Lord said in Luke 6.36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Psalm 86.5, a very important psalm, On this topic of forgiveness, it says, For you, O Lord, are good and, listen to this next phrase, ready to forgive. There's a leaning. Amy Carmichael once wrote, If I say yes, I forgive, but I cannot forget, as though the God who twice a day washed all the sands on all the shores of all the world could not wash such memories from my mind, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If the living God who made the tide and washes the shores daily cannot wash away from my mind the caustic remarks, the ugliness, the wrongs in someone else that I haven't even entered into Calvary's love. This is a posture that's commanded. Secondly, it's a posture that is constant. And listen, what I mean by this is forgiveness, having this posture of forgiveness is something that you walk through every day with before offenses even happen to you. This is who you are. This posture is what you carry into offenses. It's not a posture that you work up after an offense. Proverbs 19.11, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. Romans 12.21, Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Proverbs 16.32 He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. It's a posture. It's constant. It's commandment number three, letter C. It's a posture that is cultivated. This one's hard to talk to you about. See, what do you mean by this? And why, why the introductory nuance This is a posture you can only cultivate in the soil of trials. You don't practice forgiveness when no one has sinned against you. You build the muscles with resistance, heavy lifting. You can't learn to forgive until people start sinning against you. Before then, it's just on paper, it's on the shelf, it's underlined. Maybe that's what's behind James in James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This one's a hard one. This means you must be sinned against in order to learn forgiveness. But it's a sweet ride at the end when someone sins against you, and in return, they get love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, goodness, kindness, self-control. Well, there's one more thing about this posture. It's a posture that is Christ-like. It's a posture that is Christ-like. Hey, we studied Luke together for three years, remember that? We spent more time preaching through Luke than Luke spent writing it. I'm sure of it. But when we saw our Lord hanging on the cross, enduring the wrath of the Father for your sin, through that pain, we heard these words in Luke 23, 34. Jesus was saying, over and over, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, be careful how you hear that. Were all those people, those soldiers, those Jews, were they all saved in that moment when he said, Father, forgive them? No. Many of them would be, though, when they called out in faith and repentance on the day of Pentecost, not too far in the future. But what you're hearing from the cross is the posture of Christ towards those who are wronging him the darkest. Some of his disciples caught it. Stephen caught it in Acts 7, verse 60, when he's being stoned to death. We read, then falling on his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. That's his posture. Even Paul, in the final words of his final letter that we have in 2 Timothy 4, 16, writes, at my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. That's the posture we're talking about. So I guess we have a question. Our our first stop is coming to a close on our journey. We're just getting started. Here's the question. Is it possible, is it possible to grow in Christlikeness, listen, at all, if you do not have a posture of forgiveness. I'm not asking what theological degrees you have. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking you to read your ministry resume and experience of decades to me. I'm asking this question that our Lord is forcing on us through this text and his instruction to Peter. If I'm saying I won't forgive because of my fear, is it possible to grow in any aspect of Christ's likeness? If you say, well, maybe in a few directions I could, which one's true? That's what I need to know. And I find myself once again even preaching the sermon myself in need of repentance over my pride, over my protection. Someone once said, I can forgive, but I can't forget. And then they comment, that's just another way of saying, I won't forgive. So are you on board for this journey? We got a trip in front of us. And at this first stop, I have seen my own hesitancy to be forgiving and I need to acknowledge it to God. How about you? Buckle in for the rest of the trip. I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. And you pray first, silently in the terms that you wrote down on that paper, repenting, putting off, owning a hesitancy to forgive, and asking God, no matter who's waiting for you at the end of the journey, and everyone has a different story to tell, no matter what's at the end of the journey, ask God to keep that in the center of your mind and make the journey all the more urgent for you. Would you pray? And then I'll close. Father, a study on forgiveness seems to be bright and welcome usually at first. But when we wade in, it immediately gets heavy. Because in so many of our situations, it's we who need to repent first so that we can forgive well. You're going to show us all the intricacies of forgiveness we got a journey in front of us. But we must start at this point of repenting over our lust for keeping score. Our lust for staying in control. Our lust for an easy life where we are allowed to excise people out of our days. Forgive us. Because all three of those assail what you did on the cross so we must repent and as we repent as we confess our proneness and own it help us to begin to feel a freedom we've never felt in a long time oh we know there's still a journey in front of us we have four more stops but loosen our shackles give us enough freedom and light to give us hope just to make the next stop on our journey. And may this be a journey that will be part of our lives, the rest of our lives, for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.